So last week we saw in chapter 29, he was looking back on a time of blessing in life when he enjoyed friendship with God and uh, people respected him. 30 verse 1, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone. Through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick salt water and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They're driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless and nameless brood, they've been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They don't hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand the rabble rise, they push away my feet, they cast up against me their ways of destruction, they break up my path, they promote my calamity, they need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me, my honour is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity is passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you don't answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm the brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. I'll do please keep that open and inside your service sheets is a little outline of where we're going. Sometimes in life we can feel trapped. Trapped in a difficult present, in challenging circumstances beyond our control. Unable to see a way out. That's certainly true of our dear friends at the local hostel who are seeking asylum who fled war or persecution in their home countries, have had traumatic journeys to get here, and now they're in cramped and very basic conditions in the hostel. Nothing to do, just waiting for over a year, in many cases, waiting for the Home Office to process applications. The circumstances of most of us here are very different, but even so, we too may go through times when we feel trapped in a difficult present. 
Perhaps that's that's how you feel at the moment. Maybe you feel stuck in life. Maybe you're trapped in a difficult work situation. Or maybe in in an unhappy relationship, perhaps in a struggling marriage. Or in longing for a relationship. Or maybe stuck in a cycle of poor mental health or poor physical health. There are all sorts of ways in which we may feel trapped in a difficult present. And you find yourself living the life you never expected, uh, to take the title of one book. Now, Job could relate to these feelings. So in Job chapter 30 that I've just read, he too is trapped in a difficult present. In the previous chapter, he had been looking back to happier times in life. But now in chapter 30, the focus turns to the unhappy present. So if you've got it open, you'll see that in verse 1. He says, but now. It's the present, but now. And verse 9, and now. And verse 16, and now. It's all about the present. And what a contrast his present is. So before he had enjoyed, we saw this last week, friendship with God, and he had been honoured and respected by other people. Whereas now, God feels distant, and God feels cruel, and he doesn't answer him, and other people are mocking him. Amazing contrast. And what an important chapter for us to get to grips with, because like Job, we may well experience such times as believers. So the faithful life can be a roller coaster that it was for him, going from being on top of the world to being down in the very depths. James chapter 5, verse 11 refers to the steadfastness of Job. The steadfastness of Job. And that is a quality that we will need too as Christians in the Christian life. And if you're someone who is exploring the Christian faith, it is important to be realistic about this. That coming to Christ is not some sort of quick fix for all your problems. Yes, he promises a better life, a life of meaning and purpose and friendship with God and eternal hope, but not an easier life. So first, we may experience rejection by other people, as Job did, and as the Christ did, whom Job foreshadowed. And as we're going through Job, you may have picked up that it it works on both of these levels, that on the one hand, Job is just an ordinary believer whose experience has lessons to teach us. But on the other hand, as with so many Old Testament characters, Job foreshadows the Christ and he points us to him. So it works on both levels. We saw last week in chapter 29 how in days past, Job had been held in the highest honour by other people. We saw how in the assembly at the city gate and in the city square. So when he came in, even the nobles and the princes would stand out of respect for him and they would stop talking. And people had hung on his every word. But, 30 verse 1, but now, he says, they laugh at me. So he's now the object of scorn and ridicule and contempt and mocking, and what, it, what makes it even harder to bear is that the people who are now mocking him are the lowest of the low. 
So he who was the greatest of all the people of the East, that's what 1 verse 3 described him as, the greatest of all the people of the East, he's now mocked by those at the very bottom of the heap. And even they look down on him. So have a look at, uh, we're on page 523, verse 1 of chapter 30. He says, men who are younger than I. So these youngsters, they should have respected Job as their elder. Verse 1, he says, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. So Job's saying he wouldn't have even given their dads the lowest jobs on his estate as shepherds in charge of the sheepdogs. I mean, these guys were basically unemployable. Verse 2, he says, what could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone. And they were scavengers, verse 3. He says, through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick salt wort and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They were scavengers. And, and these were the kinds of folk that people, people kept well away from. They were sort of excluded from civilized society. Verse 5 says they're driven from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in the holes of the earth and, out, and of the rocks, among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. And they're a foolish, wicked bunch of people. Verse 8 says, a senseless and nameless brood, they've been whipped out of the land. So these aren't the poor people whom Job had spent so much time caring for in the past. This is just a rabble who are a nasty bit of work. And yet, and yet, people like this, the lowest of the low, they were now mocking Job. They were laughing at him. He'd sunk that low in life. What a fall from the highest honor as the greatest man of the East to the lowest disgrace. Jonathan Aitken was being interviewed the other day on the Christian Heritage podcast. And Job's fall reminded me of, of his story. I don't know if you remember it, but he'd enjoyed a life of honor and respect and privilege as a member of the cabinet. He'd been tipped to be the next prime minister. Highly intelligent, educated, cultured, wealthy. And then he basically walked off a cliff. And he fell to the lowest point. He lost absolutely everything. He was disgraced. He was divorced. He was bankrupt. He was imprisoned. And he was jeered at in jail by the lowest of the low. And that's basically what happened to Job. And supremely, of course, what happened to Jesus, whom Job foreshadows. Think of how the Son of God would have been honoured before he became man. Honoured, worshipped in heaven. And then think of how, how he was treated when he became a man. When he became incarnate. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. So the creator despised by the creature. The sinless mocked by the sinner. The eternal son jeered at by a crucified criminal, by blind, hypocritical religious leaders, by cruel, thuggish soldiers. What he endured for us and for our salvation. 
In verses 9 to 15, Job goes on to describe how these people now treated him. So verse 9 he says, And now I have become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor, that means they hate me. They keep aloof, that is they keep away from me. They don't hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Such hatred, I mean spitting. I don't know if anyone's ever spat at you, spat on you. It's a mark of just the utter contempt, isn't it, to spit on someone. Verses 12 to uh, to 14 describe how they rise up against him. So verse 12, on my right hand, the rabble rise. And then verse 15 sums up how dramatically his life has changed for the worse. So verse 15, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Which would you say is worse, physical pain or social shame? Which would you say is worse, physical pain or social shame? Job experienced both, didn't he? He had the pain of his illness, his physical condition, and he had the shame of being mocked and despised. So Job experienced both, and Jesus, of course, he experienced both as well. So the cross, crucifixion, was an experience not just of agonizing physical pain, but also social shame. It was both. So crucifixion was the ultimate humiliation. You had to carry your cross through the streets to the place of execution, and you would be jeered at by the crowds as you went through the streets. And then when you were crucified, you were hanging there and you were completely helpless and you were naked and you were in public. That was the whole point. It was a public thing. And it was a punishment reserved for only for the lowest of the low. Crucifixion was, of course, agonizingly painful. But the Bible accounts dwell much more on the shame than the pain. And I wonder if you've noticed that. So in Psalm 22, our first reading... David's experience foreshadowed this, and he said in 22 verse 6, he said, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. And it's very striking, when you read the Gospel accounts, and once you see this, it's really, really obvious, but in the Gospel accounts, this is what is majored on, not the physical pain, but the shame. So in Mark 15, verses 18 to 20, it speaks of the soldiers spitting on him and the soldiers mocked him. In Mark 15, 29, those who passed by derided him. That means they mocked him. Verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him. Verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That's mocked him. That's all in Mark 15. Now, what's the significance of this? I wonder if you've ever reflected on that. What's the significance of it? So why did the Son of God have to suffer shame as well as pain? And the answer is because the result of sin is shame as well as pain. And so in in suffering the judgment we deserve, Jesus had to suffer not just the pain, but also the shame as well. 
So the ultimate punishment, hell, will be a place of shame as well as a place of pain. So hell will be a place where people hate and mock each other. And so in saving us from that, Jesus had to suffer that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he pictures hell as a grey town. A grey town where the streets are basically empty, the houses are empty. Why? Because people hate each other, and so they keep moving further and further away from each other. As we share bread and wine a little bit later, to remember what Jesus suffered for us, let's remember in particular today the shame that he endured for our salvation. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame of the cross. Now, if we trust in Christ, we will receive honour instead of shame in the age to come because of what Jesus suffered for us. But in this age, in this age, following Christ will mean walking in his footsteps and that will involve being mocked by others and hated, and shamed. This was the experience of the apostles. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.13, he says, we have become, speaking as an apostle, we have become, and are still, like, like what? He says, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, those are strong terms. The scum of the earth. The scum of the earth. Scum is basically, it's the, it's the dirty stuff that you scrape off the top of liquid and you throw in the bin. That's the scum. And refuse is the word for the, the dirt that's left over after washing up. You know when you, you clean out a pan and you end up with that stuff left in the little sieve in the sink and you have to take that and sort of tap it away in the food waste and so on. That's the refuse. That's how the apostles were regarded and treated as scum, as refuse. And that is what all followers of Christ are warned to expect. So that's what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 9.23, he talked about taking up your cross. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What's that referring to? Well, taking up your cross, carrying your cross to the place of execution, as we just said, was basically the walk of shame. And discipleship means taking up our cross. Identifying with Christ may mean being rejected by other people. Hebrews 13.13 says, Let us go to him, speaking of Christ, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach the disgrace that he endured. In this country, following Christ will not involve physical pain for most of us, but it will involve shame, disgrace, mocking, rejection. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard because we all like to be liked and respected and honoured and praised. So if you're, if you're known as a follower of Christ, if you stand up for what the Bible says, you may find that at work, at school, you are shamed, you are mocked, 
uh, like a, a wharf worker who told me just the other week, it happened to him recently, so when, when his boss at work here in the wharf found out that he was a Christian, he advised him, he said, look, I'd keep quiet if I was you, because other people are going to think you're lacking in education or intelligence. It may involve shame in your wider family or among friends. So people may be, people can be very dismissive, very patronising, can't they? They say, oh, oh dear, you, you don't believe that stuff, do you? Surprise, you believe that stuff. Someone like you, thought you were intelligent. And yet often the people who say that, they've never even bothered to look at the evidence for themselves. It's all just second-hand opinions they picked up, but even so, they mock you. If you stand for Christ, it may involve rejection in the public square. So Tim Farron, former leader of the Lib Dems, he was writing a few days ago about how Christian faith is regarded as weird and irrational and eccentric and offensive and dangerous. And he said it was clear to him when he was in office. And he said it's clear in Scotland now with all this pushback against Kate Forbes becoming First Minister because of her clear Christian faith and convictions. He commented in this article, he said, it, it will always be countercultural to hold the Bible's teachings on how we live. And it is, isn't it? Whether it's what the Bible says about marriage or sex or gender or money. But it's not just countercultural on lifestyle issues. The very gospel itself is countercultural and offensive. Because the gospel itself is saying that we are sinners before a holy God, and it warns us of coming judgment, and it says that Jesus is the only way for us to be saved, and it says we can't do it ourselves, and it calls us to repent and turn from our sinful ways. It's deeply offensive to us as rebel humanity. But following Christ, Jesus said, means taking up our cross, walking in his steps, and putting up with the shame. Now, shame, just to reflect on it for a moment, shame is, it's obviously a social thing, isn't it, shame? So shame is about how other people see you. It's about our standing in the eyes of other people. So shame is basically giving the wider community a vote on my actions. That's what shame is. Someone has said that when we're faced with a decision about what to do in a particular situation, our conscience speaks to us, And there are two voices that we hear. One is the inner lawyer, and the other is the inner grandma. The inner lawyer says, this is right and that is wrong. Uh, This is good, that's evil. This is innocent, uh, that is guilty. The inner grandma is very different. So she's not interested in things like guilt and innocence. She's interested in honor and shame. And her concern is, what will people think? What will the neighbours think? You know, will this bring honour? Will this bring shame? And we all feel the force of that, don't we? So not just in Chinese culture, where as far as I understand, what the community thinks is all important, but even in our individualistic Western culture, we really feel the force of this too. And especially now, with the added... The online dimension. Horrors, the online dimension. The article I read commented, 
with the rise of social media, cancel culture and public shaming, grandma's back and she's not happy. (laughs) Of course she's not happy. In the online world, shaming is now on a different level, is it? It's on another level completely. So once you get shamed in the online world, things snowball very, very quickly and it doesn't go away. And if you've ever experienced that, it is extremely scary. We dread it, don't we? We dread having something negative put about us online. But we must not listen and let our inner grandma dictate what we do. We can't afford that to happen. We need to pray for strength by the Holy Spirit to do what is right, to take up our cross, to follow Christ. And we need to take the long view, don't we? We need to say, okay, shame now, but honor when Christ returns. That's better than honor now and shame on the last day when he returns. So the difficult present for Job involved being rejected by others, but also also feeling rejected by God. And that's the second half of the passage. So verse 16 to 18, we do get an insight into the physical pain Job was suffering. And it was pretty relentless, wasn't it? Day and night, verse 16, he says, Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones. And the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds about me like the collar of my tunic. It's a physical pain. But the worst for Job, the worst, was that he felt that God had turned against him. So in the previous chapter, he looked back to days when the friendship, he said, of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. But now he feels that God has turned against him. And instead of being his friend is his enemy. So verse 19, he says, God has cast me into the mire, and I've become like dust and ashes. And God doesn't answer his cries for help. Verse 20, he says, I cry to you, addressing God directly now, I I cry to you for help, you don't answer me. I stand, you only look at me. And he feels that God has become cruel to him. Verse 21, you've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job feels like God is sort of playing with him and tormenting him. Verse 22, you lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, you toss me about in the roar of the storm, for I know that you'll bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. If friendship with God, if that is the greatest blessing, the worst thing is to feel that God has turned against you. Now, we know that God hadn't actually turned against Job, but that is how it felt for him, when it, because he'd lost everything. And that is how it may feel for us at times as believers. Because we know God is sovereign and ultimately in control, when things go wrong in our lives, what are we tempted to feel? We're tempted to feel God is not good. He's not loving, but instead God is cruel. Shakespeare's King Lear famously said, quoted by Eric Cantona in his baffling UEFA Champions League draw speech in 2019, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. So this idea that the gods kill us for their their amusement, like cruel boys, 
who kill flies for fun. Now that is how Job felt. As his suffering continued and his prayers were not answered, that's how he felt. And that is how we will be tempted to feel when we're suffering, when our prayers go unanswered, when a loved one is dying of cancer, when we lose our job and we're struggling to make ends meet, when your prayers for a spouse go unanswered over many years, when your marriage breaks up, uh, when the battle with a a chronic health condition or a particular temptation is never-ending. We'll be tempted to feel like Job did. But we need to hold on to these these two non-negotiables. The two non-negotiables are God is sovereign and God is good. And these things never change. These things never change. God is sovereign, God is good. The answer to why we are suffering is never that God is bad or God is cruel. He wasn't in Job's case, he isn't in ours. C.S. Lewis, when he, as he watched his wife, Joy, dying of cancer, he struggled with unanswered prayer. And he wrote about his experience in his little book, A Grief Observed. And he said this, he said, Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. He added, not that I am in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. He said, the conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. See, he wasn't tempted to doubt God existed, but he was tempted to doubt that God was good and God was loving. And at some point, we will be tempted to feel the same if we haven't already. And when we do, when we do, we need to pray, Lord, I don't understand what's going on, and I don't understand why you're not answering my prayer, but I know you're sovereign, and I know you're good. And I'm going to hold on to those two things. And of course, Jesus himself knows firsthand, doesn't he, what it's like to feel rejected by God, and for God to not answer your prayers. So Psalm uh, 22, our first reading, in which David's experience foreshadows that of the Christ. How did it begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Now in Jesus' case, God really had turned against him, as he took on himself our sin and the judgment that deserves. And so when we're suffering, when we feel that God is against us, when we feel God isn't answering my prayers, it's comforting to know that we are in good company. We walk in the footsteps of righteous believers who have gone before, and supremely, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus himself. And walking in his footsteps may take us down very dark paths in life, as it did for Job. And in these final verses, he describes the darkness of his situation, how in verses 24-25, he, used, he says, he used to take pity on those suffering, but now, on no, uh, now no one's taken pity on him. Verse 25, he says, Was not my soul grieved for the needy, but when I hoped for good, evil came. 
When I waited for light, darkness came. Look at how churned up inside he is in verse 27. He says, my inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. And he's lonely and isolated. Verse 29, he says, I'm the brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. Suffering can do that. It can be a very lonely experience. His outside's decaying. His inside is full of fever in verse 30. He says, my skin turns black and falls from me. My bones burn within, with heat. And he's often in tears. Verse 31, he ends by saying, my lyre is turned to mourning. And my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Now it's not a pretty picture, is it? It is not a pretty picture, but it is real life. And it may be your life at the moment, or at some point in the future. This isn't smile, Jesus loves you, bumper sticker faith. This is faith in the real world. This is faith in the trenches, faith in suffering. And it's not, saying, it's not saying life will always be like this, but it's warning us that a godly, faithful life may at times take us through some very dark places. And we will, we will need one another, and we will need the steadfastness of Job and the endurance of Christ. Last year, scientists found the ship of the explorer Ernest Shackleton at the bottom of the sea. It sunk Uh, back in 1915, when it was crushed by ice. And the ship was called the Endurance. The Endurance. Now, that is a good name, isn't it, for a ship on an Antarctic expedition. In such a hostile environment, what you're going to need is endurance. And it's what we need as we walk in the footsteps of Job and in the footsteps of the Christ that he foreshadowed. May the God of endurance and encouragement strengthen us to keep going. That, as Romans 15.4 puts it, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Let's pause for a moment to reflect on what we've heard, maybe to pray in the quietness of our own minds and hearts, and then we're going to join in prayer together.